So angry listeners, thanks for joining us. Season two of the podcast is a wrap. So Courtney and I are taking a short break. Yep. And Carol, we're catching our breath. But while we're away, we're still busy creating more content to make season three even bigger than the last one. We will return with new episodes on January 10th. And you know what, Courtney? We're also switching to a bi-weekly schedule for uploading new episodes. So listeners, don't miss out. In the meantime, here's a reprise of one of our more popular episodes, Black Beach Bonanza, Paradise Stolen. And if our listeners want to follow up to what happened after we aired that episode, be sure to check out our season two wrapped episode at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? So here we go with Black Beach Bonanza, Paradise Stolen, and the story of Bruce's Beach. Hey, Courtney, what comes to mind when you think of taking a beach vacation at one of America's lovely coastal towns? Well, Aunt Carol, I'm thinking fun, sun, colorful drinks, great food, and warm water. Also, amazing sunsets. Well, I heard a lot of things mentioned, but I did not hear you say African Americans. And that's because most people don't know that until the mid-20th century, a good amount of America's coastline was owned by Black African Americans. Now, historically, Black Beach communities date back as far as the 1930s in a handful of coastal areas across the United States. Many sprang up during segregation when Blacks were either barred from whites-only beaches or were not accepted at any kind of beach. Now, while most were in the South, many took shape in the Northeast, in the Upper Midwest, and even California, which I think you have a story to tell us about later. These beach communities evolved into thriving economic and social life for African-Americans. And our research on this topic includes the book, The Land Was Ours by Andrew Carl, who meticulously documented this phenomenon. Now that is some interesting information, but taking a look at that book title tells me systemic racism is the reason why the title of that book is the land was ours. You have hit on an important point, my dear niece. According to a report by The Nation, Hilton Head Island, which a lot of people know about, is one of the best examples of a once predominantly Black-owned land that is now in majority white hands, due in no small measure to something called partition sales or air sales that we're going to talk about in the second half of the program. Beaufort County, South Carolina, which includes Hilton Head, was 57% Black in 1950, but it's now 77% White. Now, I know the name Hilton Head, and I know several people that live in that area. One thing I know for a fact, though, is that those locations, especially Hilton Head, bring in millions of tourist dollars for the state and those hotels on that property. Yes, they do. Yes, they bring in millions. And let me tell you about another famous location that is extremely valuable as well. It's valuable because of its real estate value. Most people have probably heard of the Hamptons. Now, that's a collection of affluent towns on the eastern end of New York's Long Island, long known for attracting wealthy summer residents. 
Well, most people probably don't know that the Hamptons has an area called Sag Harbor Hills and the neighboring districts of Nineveh Beach and Azure Rest, which are very unique among beach communities. Now, this area was founded in the uh, village of Sag Harbor after World War II, and it was during an era of deep segregation in the United States. And that area became the home to a robust Black African-American population. Working class Black families purchased much of that beachfront land. They got it inexpensively at the time, and they built modest ranch-style homes and bungalows there. Now, today, that Sag Harbor area is a haven for middle and upper middle class Black families. It's populated by doctors, lawyers, artists, and academics. The neighborhoods rank as the oldest African-American developments in the Hamptons and are among a handful of the beach communities in the United States with African-American roots. Now, famous visitors include Scott Joplin, Martin Luther King Jr., Henry Louis Gates, and even President Barack Obama. They've all vacationed there. Well, that's quite a list. But Aunt Carol, isn't it true that across the country, some historically Black beach communities like Sag Harbor are facing an influx of real estate developers seeking to get good deals on those properties? Yes, it's true. Sag Harbor and other historically Black African-American beaches are in danger. Today, land developers are greedily buying up property in what's called reverse gentrification or, or in rural areas becoming more urbanized as developers build resorts and high-end homes. Some of the people that live in the Sag Harbor area, the Black African-Americans, are fighting for their property and trying to make sure it doesn't get sold away. Now, the book we mentioned earlier, The Land Was Ours by Andrew W. Carl, is quoted as saying, and Carl is quoted as saying in the book, the irony is that many of these places were deemed undesirable when African Americans first moved there. Some of these areas are gold mines today, but those luxury re resorts in coastal Georgia and South Carolina and around the Chesapeake were once havens for African-American life and culture. They were indeed. They were indeed. And what we have seen over the years is co that co-opting beachfront property owned by Black African-Americans just didn't start. And I believe you have a story from the early 20th century that describes land theft at its best, or should I say, worse. I do, Aunt Carol. It's actually the story of two different women, two different decades, but the same city and the same sort of issues. Now, I want to thank the LA Times and their staff writer, Roxana X, for bringing light to what I'm about to share with our listeners. Now, Kavana Ward is the mother of a three-year-old. She moved to Manhattan Beach, California about three years ago. And as soon as she got to the vibrant and profitable and even beautiful seaside community, something did not sit right with her. She did not feel welcome in her new neighborhood at all. When she took her daughter to the park, which was something that a lot of the moms did in Manhattan Beach, she was almost instantly asked, 
Was she the new nanny for one of the families in the area? As if she was not affluent enough to live in Manhattan Beach on her own. Hmm, that sounds um, slightly racist, but anyway. Well, she chalked that up to individual ignorance. The next incident was while shopping in the grocery store. She had on a Black Panther t-shirt And then out of nowhere, someone just started screaming at her and calling her a terrorist. Hmm. For wearing a t-shirt? For wearing a t-shirt, but not even that. She invaded her personal space at the grocery store. Hmm. That that could end up very unhappy situation. Especially in today's climate. Hmm. Now, the final thing that let her know that this was not a coincidence is the activity on her neighborhood Facebook page. Moms would post different goings-on, concerns, school schedules, but whenever she would post something about Black Lives Matter or systemic racism or how Black parents were feeling during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as social unrest, her posts would instantly disappear. Disappear? They would disappear. She was eventually told that the posts were a bit too controversial controversial for the group. Hmm. Okay. Well, this gets really interesting. I wonder what was going on. Well, what Kavan didn't know is that she wasn't the first Black woman who invaded that bubble of Manhattan Beach. She wouldn't be the first that they tried to run away. For all the beauty and wealth and so-called progression in this California beach town, they have a history of using racial intimidation and violence to maintain its mostly white population. Oh boy, here we go. Now, Kavan did what we do on our podcast and instruct our listeners to do. She took a deeper dive into the history of Manhattan Beach. Hmm. And what she found was the story of a beach she had never heard of, a beach called Bruce's Beach. Bruce's Beach. Okay. Uh, How does all this tie together? Now, the story of Bruce's Beach begins with Willa Bruce. She purchased a lot, just a lot for a small home for her and her husband in 1912 for $1,225. Now, she bought another lot along the Strand between 26th and 27th Street in Manhattan Beach. Now, her husband, Charles, he and her were able to afford this because he was a dining car chef on the train line that ran between Los Angeles and Salt Lake City. Eventually, the Bruce family would be able to open a lodge, cafe, and dance hall, providing the Black African-American families in the area and some coming up, the surrounding states, a place to go to enjoy the beach and avoid segregation and possible racial intimidation. So these were really entrepreneurs, and they had a very valuable plot of land that they were sharing with other Black African Americans. They certainly did. Now, soon following the Bruce family's lead, other Black families began to carve out their own little slice of beachfront heaven. Hmm. 
They affectionately affectionately called the property Bruce's Beach after the first family that settled in that area. Now, the community began to turn into a getaway spot, a weekend, a vacation, and the African-American community was grateful just to have a place to hang out at the beach. But as these stories often go, when Black African-Americans carve out some sort of small niche of Black wealth, culture, and community, systemic racism is not far behind, ready to clip any wings of rising above the status quo. Oh, boy. Uh, Here we go again. Here we go again. All right. What's up? Now, the white residents living near Bruce's Beach began to use subtle racial intimidation and fear tactics to scare the community away. Somebody sent a burning mattress underneath the porch of a Black-owned home. Soon, residents and their guests started to find fake 10-minute-only parking signs to deter anyone from out of town because they didn't want to get hassled by the LAPD. Now, the land surrounding Bruce's Beach was owned by a man by the name of George Peck. Now, Mr. Peck had no problem with letting the Bruce's, the other people that own property, and their visitors to the beach to park freely. Now, imagine their surprise pulling up to the beach, and instead of finding a free parking space, they're greeted with an armed guard and a no trespassing sign. Well, things turned out a little differently here. First, they're able to go to the beach and park and enjoy things. And now there's 10 minute only and now a guard and no trespassing. Hmm, Things have turned pretty shaky here. Yes, things are taking a turn. Now, the reason why they love to park on Mr. Peck's property is you go from car to beach with a snap of your fingers. Now, since they couldn't park there, it was a whole extra half a mile just to reach the ocean. Mm. Now, this type of intimidation was not new to the residents of Southern California, because as we have learned in other podcasts, the Great Migration is what brought them there. So they knew racial intimidation when they saw it, and other people were experiencing it as well. A location by the name of the Pacific Beach Club in what was known as the Inkwell and Huntington Beach around the Santa Monica area mysteriously burned down before it could even open well okay from what i understand from history it was a lovely little spot black owned of course it didn't even open its doors no the the pacific beach club didn't even get a chance to hold one night of frivolity it was just burned to the ground. Mm. Now, the Bruces and their small enclave of Black beach property owners were not going to be harassed. Now, at that point, when the city of Manhattan re- realized that these people were not going to scare easily, the city officials just condemned the beach. In 1924, they seized it. They said it was uninhabitable and unsafe. And just like that, Bruce's Beach and all it stood for was gone. Not not even thinking about the future generational wealth that the Bruce family could have passed along to 
their descendants. So what were Willa and Charles Bruce going to do? How were they going to fight the city of Manhattan Beach? Your question is a great one, Courtney, because based on what you've described, that old cliche, you can't fight City Hall, comes to mind. These people own the land that they were living on and having entrepreneurial skills to have a lodge and a restaurant and all those other good things. And then poof, out of the blue, City Hall puts them out of business. I'm, you know, I just don't know what to expect next. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear the rest of the story and see if the Bruces were successful in their fight with City Hall. Okay, we're back. But just one thing before you finish, Courtney, I want to remind our listeners if they want to learn more about systemic racism, like the situation you're describing in today's episode, go to our website, angry for more information and to take our course, Systemic Racism. See it, say it, confront it. Okay, let's hear how this fight against City Hall ended. Now, the Bruces and three other Black families sued the city. They were citing racial prejudice and wanted compensation. The Bruces wanted $120,000 in compensation alone, $70,000 for their two lots, and $50,000 in damages. The other couple that was suing asked for $36,000. And when you hear how much that land is worth a little bit later, that's more than fair. Now, after years of legal litigation, unfortunately, the only amount that the Bruce's received was $14,500. That's a pittance. Pretty much. Now, the other family received between $1,200 and $4,200 per lot. Nothing, nothing. Pennies, pennies on the dollar. Well, defeated most of the thriving Bruce's Beach community just found another place to hang out if they were welcome. But it seemed like Manhattan Beach had a little bit of a vendetta against the Bruce's because whenever they tried to open a new business somewhere else in town, they couldn't do it. The city blocked them at every turn. So eventually the Bruce's just packed up and went inland. And they served as chefs for other businesses for the remainder of their lives. So a viable Black African-American business was put out of business by the city. Several businesses, beach homes. Yeah, you're catching on here, Aunt Carol. Totally not fair. Now, the story and the truth of Bruce's Beach and how they lost it haunted the Bruce family. As they watched Manhattan Beach develop into a wealthy seaside town, the history of their family and their land was erased. Even though they knew the truth and the city knew the truth, the city was painting a whole other story about the beach. Hmm. Now, in, in the 1950s, the city got a little bit worried that the Bruce family would try to come back one more time and sue for their land. So quickly, they just turned what used to be Bruce's beach 
into a city park. Well, that was convenient. Well, you see, it's maybe almost 30 years too late. The land was condemned in 1924. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, one Bruce family member who was born right after the condemning of the beach property spoke out openly against a against the crime committed against his family by the city. He was quoted as saying in a 2007 interview with the LA Times, how would you feel if your family owned the Waldorf Astoria and they just took it away from you? Bernard would recant tales of growing up as a kid in South Central LA and taking the school bus or a bike ride out with his friends past the park that used to be his family's land. He tried to tell his friends that used to belong to the Bruces and his friends, kids being kids, just laughed at him. I can imagine they would. Who would think that a Black African-American family would own such valuable property? Well, by 2006, the city council voted three to two to throw the Bruce family a bone and just rename the beach Bruce's Beach. Now, the person who led the charge for that, which was something that should have been done, I'm not going to lessen that achievement, was done by Councilman Mitch Ward. He was the city's first, in 2006, the city's first Black elected official. Mm. Now, there was plans for a sign to be put up to tell the glorious history of Bruce's Beach. But when the sign was erected, the truth still wasn't being told. There was no mention of the the community, the lodge, the dance hall, even the Bruce's. Nothing about the harassment, racism, and expulsion that the Black residents, along with the Bruce's, had to endure. What the sign read was, Mr. Peck. You know, the guy with the free parking spaces mm-hmm, that actually went away. But Mr. Peck, <laughs> Mr. Peck, one day he and the white residents of Manhattan Beach, California, decided that Bruce's Beach should be open to all residents. And that children is how Bruce's Beach was integrated. Mm, I, oh, that's a sleight of hand, to say the least. But anyway, what happened after that? Can you sense my sarcasm? Just a tad. Now, as of 2020, uh, the Bruce property, Bruce's Beach, is now worth, get this, $75 million. Woo! Oh, that just takes my breath away. $75 million. $75 million. Now, it's owed them. It was their property and the city, along with white residents did everything they could to run them out of town. But if the Bruce family is to be paid that $75 million, it will be the residents of Manhattan Beach through taxes paying them that money. Highly unlikely, highly unlikely. But anyway. Well, the consensus of the mostly white community is this. We know what happened to the Bruce's. We know that it was wrong. We're willing to say we're sorry and we're willing to even put up a new sign, but we do not want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to recognize it 
because it would only expose the darker portions of the history of Manhattan Beach and would only create, create divisiveness. Why would you want to spread hatred over an event that happened 100 years ago? Well, I can tell you why, but I think our listeners would figure that out as well. So I can, I can give you 75 million reasons why. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Well, the town's mayor said that he was open to giving a public apology to the Bruces and thought that the sign should be redone. But he, in no uncertain terms, wants to shine a light on that, that shady, dark, systemic racism that led to the Bruces having to get an apology in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now, he says the city is nothing like it was in 1912 and throughout the 20s. Well, I hate to fact check the mayor, but Kavan's story about the moms in the park, the lady in the grocery store, how she was treated on Facebook, and the fact that the town is only 1% African-American lets me know that not much has changed and racial intimidation is still happening. I have to agree with you. The mayor seems a little, little uh, in twilight zone because he's not getting it. Well, my theory is a lot of those people can trace their roots back to the 20s in Manhattan Beach and they don't want their families exposed to what they did to the Bruces. But that's just a theory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, activist groups like the one started by Kavan and other people who are learning about Bruce's Beach, they're really working towards getting justice for the Bruce family. They held a Juneteenth celebration at the park this year. They're having petitions sent out. They're going to city council meetings. They're really advocating for the Bruces to be paid for their land and be acknowledged as an integral part of the history of Manhattan Beach. That's fair now, enough. And that's fair enough. It's more than fair. Now, on, and another thing that they are are pushing for is that the real history is taught to California school students and especially students in the Los Angeles area. So they know that there is African-American history all around them. Well, and you and I would definitely advocate for that because that's what this podcast is all about, revealing the rest of American history that barely gets told. Exactly. Now, I think the best way to sum up this story is by an African-American native by the name of Kalia Zytron. She moved back to Manhattan Beach at the start of the coronavirus pandemic to quarantine with her older parents. She learned about Bruce's Beach at one of the events held at the park. And she said this, the history of Black wealthy families is not celebrated. It's a history and it's a part of Manhattan Beach. It's devastating. Now for her, paying the Bruce family back would be far more significant than anything else. Not teaching, not another sign, not another I'm sorry. She feels that reparations are the least that the city could do. Another quote from the article from the LA Times, it's more about what Black people are owed and what was unlawfully taken from them 
is what Zitron continued to say. It's about being accountable to people who have been oppressed for hundreds of years. Well, Courtney, I couldn't agree with Zitron anymore. What she said is exactly right. Black people are owed for what has been unlawfully taken from them. And the Bruces, for sure, it must be very hurtful to know that they lost their land in such an awful and unfair way. And not only did they lose their land, but they lost a fortune. And that fortune could be uh, used for their family to be uh, to have wealth and generational wealth for times to go for well into the future. But, you know, this is not uncommon and the problem persists into the present. Land developers and cities have been using laws and intimidation and things like eminent domain, like they did with the Bruces to turn that land into a park to perpetrate basically out and out swindles of Black African-Americans to lose very valuable beachfront property. There's another way, though, that land is slipping away. And this is a pernicious method known as heirs property, in which land can be partitioned and sold away from people who own it. So there are a lot of ways to lose your land. This one looks really legal on paper. So let me tell you a little bit about it and tell our reader, our listeners about it, Courtney. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, heirs property has been the leading cause of Black involuntary land loss. It sounds a little complicated, but it's really not. This is how it happens. Let's say somebody owns land and that person dies, but they didn't have a will. Well, their heirs, their wife, their children, they become the owners of the property. However, without a deed or a will that explains who is supposed to actually own the property, down through the years, all of the heirs who are uh, relatives and children of those people in that family, they have a fair share of the land. Now, some families erroneously believe that property would be harder to sell when it was in every heir's name. Unfortunately, this is absolutely not the case since the way that heirs' property works, if a single heir decides that they want to sell the land, they can force what's called a partition sale. And in that instance, the entire property can be sold. So what happens if there's no clear title and lots of heirs who have claims on the property? Well, usually a lot of bad things can happen. For example, the land can be lost, like I said, through a partition sale. The other thing that can happen is the land could be lost because of taxes. For example, if there are a lot of people who own the land but don't even know they own the land and they don't pay the taxes, then the land can be sold by the city or by the county uh, to recoup those price, those uh, taxes. Also, heirs' property limits the ability to borrow against the value of property. So that cuts off a source of funding. Another problem is when natural disasters like a hurricane hits, Property owners that live on the land or in homes titled as heirs' property, they can't even get federal help to repair their homes since there's no clear property. For example, 
if they go to the government and say, hey, my house, the roof on my house is gone. The first thing the government wants to know is show me your deed, show me your, uh, your title to the land and to that house. And they don't have it. In many ways, this restricts people from building wealth, building homes, having farms, selling land, because they don't have clear title. And this means that they can be land rich, but they can't access that money. And Carol, that sounds like heirs property creates a nightmare for families. And I understand that a that a clearing title involves wading through complicated family dynamics and legal hoops. Cases typically take anywhere from nine months to four years. That is exactly right. And it's an uphill battle to untangle the legal mess that heirs property present. It all sounds pretty bleak, but there appears to be some hope for this situation. Let's tell our listeners some things that are being done to protect heirs property and the land from being lost. Yes, there is hope, Courtney. Let's first talk about what you can do if you are a part owner of land. First of all, plan for the future, write a will, find a good lawyer, and make sure that you're passing the land on. If you if you own it outright, make sure you're passing it on in clear title to the next generation. Also, pay your property taxes. There's no easier way to lose your land is to not pay those taxes. And also track your expenses. If you're part of owner in a in a land um, like that, you're part heir, keep track of your expenses because if a partition sale does happen, you might be able to receive a larger portion of the, the proceeds. Okay, so death and taxes, writing a will and making sure we're paying our taxes. Those are two things we can't escape and two things that aren't fun to do. But here is something that might be a little fun and can help write a family tree. Find out the names on the deed for your land and lay out each generation of heirs that has followed. Create a paper trail to prove your ownership. If you inherited your property without a will or a formal or formal estate proceedings, many states will allow for an affidavit of heirship to be filed in the property records to establish your ownership. That is exactly right. And there are two other ways that you can um, preserve that land. Think about consolidating ownership. Remember, some of these heirs live all over the country in different states and really don't have a claim to the property. But there might be some relatives that are actually living on the land and they have close ties to it. In many states, you can do a gift deed to give that property to those folks. Another thing you can think about doing is talking to a lawyer that you trust and set up a family LLC or land trust. And that way you can manage the co-ownership of the land. There are nonprofit groups also trying to sort out these issues. For instance, in South Carolina, the Center for Heirs Property Preservation began pursuing a new initiative. It's aimed at helping heirs property owners generate money from their land in some of the same ways wealthy Southern South Carolina families have done for years by growing and harvesting trees. 
That's a great idea. Also, remember, 14 states have passed the Union Partition of Heirs Property Act, which expands heirs' rights to partition act actions and can help heirs' property owners gain access to Department of Agriculture programs. And the 2018 Farm Bill created a lending program that, if funded by Congress, would support local organizations providing legal assistance to heirs' property owners. And this is very important because remember when we talked about how long these legal cases can take, having access to someone who can help you, who uh, can go through that, that red tape is very important. Yep, Courtney, these are all good steps, steps that the property owners and heirs can take, as well as advocates that can help them. So we believe with a concerted effort, perhaps there will be an, a halt to the loss of land among Black African Americans. Well, I'm hoping for that too. Well, that brings us to a close of another episode. Join us next time where we celebrate Thanksgiving. But instead of talking about the pilgrims on Plymouth Rock, we're going to talk about the curious and sometimes confrontational relationship between Black African Americans and Native American tribes. But if you miss us in between time, of course, Join us on the website, which is whyaretheysoangry.com. Give us a follow and a like on Instagram at whyaretheysoangry. Give us a like on Facebook, on our Facebook page at whyaretheysoangry. And send us a tweet and follow us on Twitter at W-A-T-S-A underscore online. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.